Um, if you would open your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It's been a wonderful week. God's blessed us with cooler temperatures, and as most of you who have been here for any length of time know that the cold season is my favorite, because you get to have fires at home and read books and all of those wonderful things. Although God's made it cool outside, my wife has not given me permission to have a fire in the house yet, so y'all pray for her, because it's getting close to that time where I just do it anyway without asking. (laughs) So you pray for her and then pray for me and the consequences of that. But aren't the changes in seasons wonderful? Uh, Isn't it marvelous the way that God has knitted together His creation that we go through cycles and we see this morning as Sarah and I were coming to church, we got that, you know, that one day of fall that we get here in West Texas. It's it's happening today, friends. Don't miss it. Um, It reminded me of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God's wisdom is better than ours, is it not? Amen. So we return today to hear from the Apostle John, verses 6 through 10 of chapter 3 of John's first letter. We've seen the emphasis of this portion uh, from the end of chapter 2 until now is who we are in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, John said. He doesn't say that we should attempt to be. He does not say that we hope to be. And he does not say that one day we will be. He says, beloved, today, now, we are children of God. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? And he goes on to say, so we are. Can it be? Isn't that amazing that we, those sinners, are God's children? We know that John is writing for our joy. And what could be a greater joy to sinful wretches like you and I than the reality that we have been born of the Spirit of God? And John goes on to say, if joy is going to be to its fullest in your life, if you're going to have real joy, then your life must bear out in your living, in the day-to-day details, not only in the profession, but in your walk, the fact that you are born again. If you claim to be a child of God, what John is saying is you will indeed, in light of that fact that you are a child of God, live a holy life. Friends, there is not a word in the English language that is more understood than the word holy. And the reason is because there's been so much priggish, prudish religion perpetrated on humanity. So much false, vain ideas of man presented as though they were the things of God. And and here John doesn't tell us that we're going to live a ritualistic life. He doesn't say that we are going to live a religious life in the sense that it it depends solely upon our performing some religious function. No, John comes and says this is a life lived, the holy life, in light of a relationship that the Holy Spirit, the person of Christ, and the decrees of God have accomplished in the hearts of His people. The holy life is a life that emanates not from man, 
but from God Himself, from His own character. It's what's being taught from verses 4 through 10 in this passage. We've already looked at two statements in this section that are very notable and I think far too often glossed over, and that is in verse 5 and 8, why the Lord has come. Verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Jesus came for the remission of sin, for atoning, for the atonement of our sin on the cross, and He also came, in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and we learned last week that the works of Satan are done chiefly in lies about God. So let us look at these verses again, afresh and anew, and see what they're saying in their full-orbed sense about the Christian life and holy living. If you would rise to your feet this morning as we do honor the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired Word. John, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit that gives you and I new life, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works, the lies of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Friends, this is God's word. It's a gift to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today acknowledging our frailty, acknowledging our tendency to bias when we come to Your Word, to see things that You have not spoken. So Father, would You do what only You can do and illuminate the text in our hearts and in our minds? Would You convict us where we have sinned against You and against Your church? Would You draw draw us ever closer to Christ and conform us into the image of Christ that You might receive all of the glory in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Verses that we come to today 
Verses 6 through 10 are controversial. They have been surrounded by controversy. Now, we have to square with something. And that is the fact that the Bible in and of itself is not a controversial, it is not a contradictory document. So the question comes, why all of the controversy? Why is it that throughout the ages there has been this tendency for passages like these verses in verses 6 through 10 to create division in the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to divide denominations? Well, the answer is because we have this tendency to come to the Word of God with our own bias, with our own prejudice, and to read into the Word of God what we want to get from it. We tend to come to the text with our own theoretical views on the world and on life, and we see them in the text. But friends, that's a wrong way to come to the Word of God. We have to be careful not to thoughtlessly read the Word of God. Not to end up looking into the pages of Scripture and manufacturing things that will bring us comfort. Instead, we need to seek a true understanding of the Word of God that we might actually receive from God. Comfort and joy. John has been writing for our joy. He's writing that we might behold wonderful things that God has done. And yet, all throughout church history, especially the past 300 years, there's been a lot of controversy around texts like these. Because they make us feel uncomfortable. I just believe that God allows us to feel comfortable for a moment that we might have joy forever. So we must be careful not to be preachers, not to be Christians who want temporary comfort and end up being robbed of eternal joy. We should be people who are okay to be comfortable for a moment that we might have everlasting joy in God and what He said. You see, we tend to come to the Word of God. Friends, here's the thing. You ever been to the grocery store and you're checking out and you read the headlines on all of the tabloids that are, you know, I embarrass Sarah because I'll pick them up and read them. Like the stupidest things that they print. A thoughtless garbage that is, is in them. But you know what is crazy? That stuff sells. I, I mean, to the masses and why? Because in our natural fallen state, we don't like to think. And what we like is good, juicy gossip and truth, light. And friends, if we see that at work in the world, we need to be careful that we aren't the kind of Christians who say, well, we never struggle with that at all. Friends, I can promise you we struggle with it because of the controversies that pop up in the church throughout the ages. Because what you see in the unraveling of good hermeneutic and good interpretation of the Bible is that, well, the apostle was in fact right when he said there will come a day when, when people will, hit, will, will desire, they'll have itching ears and they will heap up for themselves teachers after their own passions. They'll find people to make arguments from the text that are not actually in the text. Uh, what the apostle is actually saying there is there will be a day where people will pay men and women to stand in the pulpit and treat the Word of God not, uh, like a tabloid. And so it is, it is in our generation. that The controversy stems not from the text. The controversy stems 
from those who are reading it. The the controversy is not because of the word of God. The controversy is because of the people who lord over the word of God. Let that be a warning to each one of us. That we might surrender ourselves under the weight of this text. That we wouldn't take away from it. And that we would not add to it. So the question might arise, well, what is the controversy? Now, the controversy surrounds the question often in various ways and by different titles of teaching. Does this text teach Christian perfectionism? That is, does verses 6 through 10 teach that a Christian, this side of heaven, can attain sinless perfection? Now, I think one of the most interesting things, and I'm not going to go down a rabbit trail very long here. But one of the most interesting things is how people have come to this text to teach sinless perfection. And as they are teaching sinless perfection, they slander their neighbor in the process, which proves that their entire system is wrong. Individuals like John Wesley, who have risen up in our history and taught that we can, in fact, come to a point of blessedness in the Christian state before eternity, before our glorification, where we do not sin. And that man was the biggest liar in the history of the church. Now, that's anecdotal. He may not, that's subjective, maybe not the biggest one, but he had a a, a penchant to lie against his theological opponents. Which just goes to prove that his point and position were wrong. One of the controversies um, uh, raged in this particular context between Wesley was that with him being a proponent for um, sinless perfection and George Whitfield being a proponent for progressive sanctification. That we in fact will continually grow in a state of grace throughout our lives and that's in fact what this passage is teaching. And friends, one of the things that is so eminently helpful in discerning good theology from junk is when you actually read the letters that these men wrote back and forth to each other because you start to begin to understand their character. And Wesley and, 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 and Whitfield's character was such that even this man who would slander him and gossip about him and say false things about him, Whitfield was always humble and kind and always begging him to come back to the truth. And so as we deal with this controversy, as we look at what is being taught here, we need to ask this question. The, 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 the conversation really centers around whether or not the apostle is referring in these passages to individual acts of sin or is he referring to something else? In verse 6, no one, abi- no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Does this mean that no one who abides in Christ sins in individual acts? In verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. The same question here. Does this mean individual acts of sin? Do, do, do the people of God cease to sin completely? Verse 7, whoever practices, and this in the affirmative, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In the affirmative sense, is this speaking about individual acts of righteousness or is it speaking to something else? Verse 8, whoever practices, makes a practice, excuse me, of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. 
And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Does this mean that people who are born of God cannot commit individual acts of sin? And if it does mean that, and some people will argue that, and and if you're sitting here going, this is not a debate that I would even conceive of, well, rejoice, my friend, because that means at some level in your life you've been taught some good theological background to the text. Uh, because there are many people who would argue in various veins this very thing. that this, When John is writing here, he's writing about individual sins. And if that is true, then what John is teaching here is, in fact, the doctrine of sinless perfection. perfection. And the proponents uh, of this kind of doctrine go on to divide the text in a lot of ways to teach that this is not everyone in the church. It's a segment of the church that gained sinless perfection. And we'll get to that argument more in a bit. But as I said earlier, this text, in fact, doesn't have an ounce of controversy in it. It doesn't have an ounce of controversy in it because if we look at the original grammar that underlies the translation, the clear meaning in the original language is plain. And the plain meaning comes through in understanding that the verbs in verses 4 through 10 are in the present and either indicative or participle form. And what that means for those who are not linguists here today is that they describe not individual acts, but the ongoing character of the individual that they are associated with. What is being pointed to here is a habit rather than particular sins that are committed. If we look at verses 6 through 9, remember, no contradiction in Scripture. Verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning, uh, uh, no one in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If this is individual acts of sin, then it means that you cannot be a Christian and sin at all. And that can't be what it means. Because there's not one of us in here today who would say, if we were humble, that we have not sinned even today. So it can't mean that. Or if you look at verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, is he saying here that you can that you can you commit an act of sin if you commit an act of sin then you can't be born of god if that is true we would have no hope and we would definitely have no joy what he's aiming at here is rather a habitual pattern or a propensity to make a practice in your life of sinning That when you come to the Word of God and you're confronted with the things of God and you see what God clearly demands of you, you shirk it off in one way or another and say, no, I can keep on sinning. It's no big deal. The Christian doesn't do that because not only is he constrained outwardly with the Word of God as he understands it and as it is proclaimed, but he also is constrained inwardly through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and through progressive sanctification. He grows to put off sin, to put off the old man, and to put on the new man. That's clearly what is being taught here. Look at verses 7 and 8 in the positive. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from 
the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I want you to look at verse 7. And be very careful about how you understand these words. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Now we might think that the better way to, to say this, and man always thinks he has a better idea than God, would be to say, if you are righteous, then you will practice righteousness. But that's not what was inspired in this text. What is inspired by God himself is whoever practices righteousness is righteous. What he says here is that our practice of righteousness stems not from our own morality, but from who we are in Christ. Who we are is evidenced in what we do. It's not saying, well, if you want to be a Christian, then you need to do your best to aim at righteousness. That's not Christianity. Christianity is because we have been born of God. Because, beloved, for your joy, He has revealed through John to you that you are called children of God, and so we are. Then you will go on, because you're positionally righteous, to live in actual righteousness. That is what is being taught here in these verses. We are called children of God. That is our state. And we are righteous in Christ. And so we live it out in our lives in an increasing fashion. What is, again, he's aiming at here is not so much what we do. And I've seen so many people use this text to bash a brother or Christian, sister Christian over the head after they've sinned and say, well, you might not be born again because you've committed an act of sin. It's not what is being taught here. And it's an abuse of the text. And what's so obnoxious about it, you know, as I get a little bit older, you know one thing I find very difficult? I, I thought I would grow in this, but I'm not. And that is keeping my mouth shut when people abuse the Word of God. I used to just go, well, maybe they're right. But in context, there is no way to use this text in, 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 in beating someone over their head for an act of sin. Now, it's a good text to go to a brother or sister in Christ in all, of humi- in all humility and say, brother or sister, if this is the trajectory of your life, is, if this is the course of your life, is the, if this is the habit of your life and you refuse to repent, then what John is saying here is you're probably not a Christian. But we shouldn't ever use the text in a way to be spiritually abusive and cause someone to lose all assurance simply because they have fallen into sin. It's not the meaning of the text, and we shouldn't be quiet about that kind of abuse of God's Word. Friends, this is so clear. Look back to verse 1. So see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. It is our state. Can you believe it? This is who we are. And we know that we're still sinful in our flesh. But, but, but we, we are the called children of God. He's, he's leveling before us. He doesn't start out with righteousness. He starts out with our new identity in Christ. And if that is in fact your identity, then what he says, live in that identity. Walk in that identity. Be righteous. Because here's the fact. You are righteous. 
You have been given the righteousness of Christ, not by your own merits, but by the grace of Almighty God. Rejoice in that daily by growing in sanctification. Is that not a joy? We don't have to wake up every morning under this nonsensical Armenian teaching that causes us to question whether or not we are good enough to be loved of God. Before we took our first breath, before we ever conceived of anything good or evil, God set His love upon His church. And we are righteous, so live like it. Now He also gives this, honestly, as a way by which we can discern who really are in Christ and who are not. John doesn't come here and say, Beloved, if someone has prayed a prayer and made a decision, then you have to believe that they're a Christian. Because if the trajectory, you can decide all you want. But if your life is not a life growing in parallel, in increasing fashion, to the character and the nature of God, then you have no reason to be assured of your salvation. That's what John is saying. That's a hard truth. But it's a truth that he levels, not that we would be discouraged, but I have found many people who have lived their lives in the church and when they come alive to the truths that John is teaching in this passage, all of a sudden they realize I've never repented of anything in my life. I'm not really born again and I need to turn to Christ in faith and repentance. So even if there's a little bit of discomfort there this morning for you and you think, you know, I really can't see the life of Christ bearing out in my living, then, beloved, the the slight discomfort you feel this morning is for your eternal joy that you would turn to Christ today. Character, the nature, the habit of our life, if we are in Christ, will be not to sin. Now, here's the great error of this text. The great error is to come to this text and say, well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cheat on my wife, I don't do all of the list of fundamental Baptist sins, so I'm living the life that God wants me to. Beloved, that falls far short of the standard of actually walking in light of being a called child of Almighty God. It falls far short of the standard of actually manifesting in your life the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not what is taught here. We must be growing in Christ-likeness. We learned several weeks ago that true holiness is not piety in the pietistic, snobby, high-minded sense. Holiness is to be more like Jesus. So the question is, is the habit of your life ever increasingly more like Christ? It's clear here that this passage is teaching about the state of Christians and what naturally flows out of their lives. If this passage is again speaking of individual sins, then it's speaking of sinless perfection and it's teaching something more horrifying than sinless perfection. It's teaching us that there are no Christians in the universe. So it can't be individual sins. We have to settle with that. And we settle with that because he's not talking about individual Christians. He's talking about the body. He's talking to individual Christians. 
but in the context of speaking to all Christians together. Proponents of sinless perfection will say that this passage is only speaking to some. It's only speaking to those who have attained it. Other people divide out wrongly that this is only speaking of your new Christian nature. That you won't sin out of your new Christian nature in Christ, but in the flesh you will still sin. That is nowhere in the text at all. That is not even assumed in any of the context. And so so that can't be what it means. He's aiming here at, at, at all Christians. And again, th- th- this group of, of sinless perfection proponents. And friends, you'll find this theology alive and well in most liberal mainlines that... I don't mean to throw stones to anybody who comes from this heritage, but the the Methodist church teaches this in many ways to this day. Um, And it's a destructive use of of this text. Because ultimately what happens is in creating two groups inside the body of Christ, those who have attained sinless perfection and those who haven't, there's actually this third group that ends up coming out. There are the middle road Christians then, and they will also create this group where there's no scriptural foundation for this, that you can be a believer in Christ and not experience any kind of sanctification. Is Rachel in here or is she next door? We've been talking to our missionaries and have not we heard this doctrine? Have we not heard individual Christians that our church support say, and we won't support them for long, just so we're clear. And I don't mean that in any hateful way. But say, well, there are those who come to Christ and they're just Christians, but they never grow. John says, no. That is not true. If in fact... John is saying here in verse 6, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. All Christians, in some sense, abide in Christ. Now there's some argument and discussion to have in the use of this word in its context in various passages and and, and Jesus is in some place calling us to abide in Him and we will bear much fruit and and those things. But if, if you don't abide in Christ at all, then you're not a Christian at all. That's just the reality of what the Bible teaches. Teaching this idea that we can be Christians and not grow is a denial of the doctrine of new birth. We've all been anointed of God in chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing that you received from Him, John has already taught us, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it, is, as it has taught you, abide in Him. There is this teaching here at the beginning of this verse that everyone who has, uh, who has this anointing has received from Him this abiding reality that we know who Jesus is. We know that He is holy. And so we seek to live our lives in holiness, in His direction. He, he has taught of Himself to us through this anointing. By His Holy Spirit, He has made plain who Christ is. We can't buy into these kinds of doctrines that teach us that one day we're a Christian, and then the next day when we sin, we're not a Christian. 
It's not what this passage teaches. It's not what the word of God in its fullness teaches. Ultimately, again, I have to level with the fact that this is teaching about who we are in Christ and then the natural effects. what, What John is saying here is if we have been anointed of God to see Christ as our Redeemer, if we have been called children of God, if... If God has given us a new nature, if you have been made a partaker of the divine nature in Christ, then naturally that is going to affect your life. You won't live like the world. You won't live in conformity to the passing thoughts of the modern age. And again, this isn't saying you won't live in the, the just that you'll, you'll stop doing all of this list of bad things that your preacher talks about. You'll actually put on some things in your life. That's what the Galatians chapter 5 teaches us. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and Things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is in agreement with John. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been crucif- have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are putting off the old and we're putting on the new. The characteristic of our life will not be... That of a nature or a habit of sin, it'll be that of growing in Christ's likeness and putting away the habits of sin. Part of what John is teaching here, if we connect it back with what he teaches in John chapter 3, and that we, to, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again, and that is not of our undoing. It's this reality. Not only... Do we not decide our own salvation? We ultimately as Christians, now we have part of the work in our sanctification in growing. There is synergism there. But ultimately, it is still the work of God in us. A Christian no more decides to be sanctified any more than a child decides to grow up. That little baby that you bring home from the hospital doesn't wake up on the fourth day and just say, you know what, I'm going to decide that I'm going to get a little bigger tomorrow. That, that's not what happens. The natural order of things is that child has been born into this world, and so what happens? He grows. And so it is in the Christian life. If we, in fact, are born of God, the Spirit has regenerated us unto new life, we love Jesus, we love His church, we love the things of God, we love the Word of God, then by nature... By the natural flow of things, we will put off the old man and will become more and more like God. We will run to Christ. We will grow in Christ. We will worship Christ. Why? Because it is the natural course of the Christian life. Do we sin in the body of Christ? Yes. And sometimes egregiously. But our nature will not allow us to live in that sin. You can't go on sinning as a Christian and enjoy it because the Spirit has indwelled you and will convict you. And it may be that you go through a season of sin, but if you repent in that, you have evidence that you have been born again. We are not perfect people now. 
It's why I don't understand Christians who, who you know, <clears throat> that it's a spiritual disposition that comes out in this. Huh. Towards other Christians in their sin. I can't believe you would do that. This is the insanity. I get frustrated with the huffers and I go, we are all broken people, right? I don't respond to the sins of others the way that we should. We do fall into sin. But as Christians, we don't stay in the dirt. We get up. That's what John is teaching. We get up. We move on. We grow. We know that we've sinned. That's one of the greatest graces when you have an individual who is weeping over their sin and the reality that they've sinned post-salvation against Christ and, and, and all that He has done for them. That means you're alive. The reality that you sense the, the awfulness, the, the weight of your sin against the church and against Christ is a picture that you have in fact been born again. Because I can tell you this, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins don't care. What a gift conviction is. That uncomfortable feeling that leads to eternal joy and repentance. We can't join in the flood of debauchery, but we can fall into sin. Why? Because the seed of righteousness is in us and it is beginning to flower and flourish. Someone will come then and say, well, doesn't this teach if God births people into His kingdom who are holy and righteous and He's declared them righteous, but they don't experience that to the fullness of perfection in this life, does that not teach then that God's plan for redemption includes imperfection? And I suppose the answer is yes. But the qualification is this. The imperfection is never morally God's responsibility. The joy in knowing that God saves with imperfection in our lives in mind is that He saves imperfect people. And that He sanctifies us all throughout our lives. Some who argue for sinless perfection say that you're limiting the power of God by saying that, that God couldn't theoretically bring someone to a point of perfect sanctification this side of heaven. You are, you are somehow marring the character of God by saying that God will not, in fact, bring His saints to glorification until heaven. You, you, you're, you're binding Him in some sense. Well, I guess theoretically that could be true, but the problem is we've already learned that God's Word's not a theoretical book. It's a book where he reveals to us how he is doing the work of redemption. So we could just as easily say, well, why couldn't God just simply destroy Satan? Why, 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 why does he leave Satan here? Why does God not just make us holy through and through the moment that we come to Christ? Why do we have to struggle through progressive sanctification? God could do all of those things, couldn't he? He could. If in His infinite wisdom, God chose to do away with Satan, He could have done that prior to the fall. If God chose to make us holy in our living, He could do that in an instant. But apparently, according to the Word of God, that's not the wisdom of God. That's not what He has chosen 
to do? And the better question is, who are we to question what God is up to? What is left to us is not to question God for why he has done the plan of redemption the way he has. What is left to us is that we live under the plain teaching of his word. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this this morning? God can be trusted with the plan of redemption. Man couldn't be trusted with the plan of obedience. But God can be trusted with the plan of redemption. He can be trusted with our souls. And God has chosen to leave Satan and us in the world. God has chosen to to work in our lives in a progressive way to sanctify us moment by moment throughout our Christian walk. It's part of what what Paul is saying in that great sweeping statement in verse 19 of chapter 5. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God has chosen to do his sanctifying work again gradually. He has also chosen to sanctify us in different areas at different times. One of the things that I've increasingly seen in the body of Christ is our disposition is to look at other Christians and say, you know, I just don't know why God does it fix that person in that particular area. To look at an individual and say, I don't know why he doesn't get rid of that kind of attitude that they have in their life. And that's a wrong attitude to have because what we should marvel at is the fact that, Brian, he's sanctified you at all. Libby, you can amen there. Preach. That he's sanctified Jay at all. That should cause us to marvel and to wonder. God has chosen to befriend you and I who are sinful wretches falling far short of His glory. And He chooses day by day to mold us into the image of His beloved Son. That should cause us to shout with praise to His wonderful name. He's chosen to do these works and we should be able to bear with one another in long-suffering as He sanctifies each one of us. I think one of the most marvelous words in all of this passage comes in verse 9. Look with me. Not one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. The word seed there. Isn't that the way of God? To work by planting seeds. And, and, and as we see that in the agricultural world, the, the, the plant may take weeks to sprout, and then it sprouts, and it takes... Months possibly to grow into a a, a sapling or a small tree. And then it takes years before it has a canopy where it will actually bear fruit. And so it is in your, your and my life. God births us anew as babes in Christ. And then slowly but surely He sanctifies us and molds us into the image of His Son. And we put off what is old and we walk in the new. We gradually grow to be like Him. Every one of us. So the question that should hound us is not why does God choose to do His work of sanctification in our lives again in this fashion. And if we look at throughout the Old Testament, is He not doing the very same thing? He starts with what He calls a small group of people. But he says, one day the people I redeem will will, will, will rival the stars and the sand and all of that. It will be my chosen beloved people in heaven. And we see all of the the sin and the wanderings of the 
Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And we might wonder, why did God just not choose to put into the garden a people completely cauterized to do righteousness in abundance and just kill Satan? I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question. But you know what? I don't care. Because He has chosen to lavish His love upon me before the foundation of time. And there's no reason to answer that question. There's no reason behind that either other than He is good and loving and merciful and true. That should be enough to fuel our worship. Friends, some of our questions are, are their own indictment. Are they not? They show our pettiness and our small-mindedness and our thoughtlessness. What, what John teaches here is if you experience sin, that, that, that's not saying you're not a Christian. But if you live a habitual pattern of sin in your life that you have no desire to repent of, that is an indicator that something may be wrong. God is progressively sanctifying you and I. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, He sums it up in this one verse after telling us And this is where he's aiming. After telling us who we are in Christ, that we are called children of God, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who is born of God will ultimately manifest the new life in the holiness of their living. If you turn back with me briefly, I'll close with this. I think we can tie this together in the exhortation we've already been given to not love the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whosoever does the will of God abides forever. Alexander McLaren wrote a fantastic sermon on that one verse in which he points out two metaphorical elements of verse 17. He calls the river and the rock. And what he points to is that time is passing by and there should be an urgency in our lives to progressive sanctification. We should live in a state of mind where we realize that we are ever, every second getting one, one second closer and closer to eternity and we should have a mind to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And in pointing to this passage, he calls the river, he, he, he makes this metaphor of the river being the world and the lusts that are passing away, not just in the sense of time and material, but all of the systems of the world that lie in the power of the evil one and the affections from within. Not only is there evil outside of us in the world, but there is also still besetting sin inside of us. And all of those things, McLaren says, are passing away. They are like a swift current rushing by ever closer and closer to eternity. Everything, John says, McLaren clarifies, is passing away. But there opposed to this river is a rock. A rock against which which the, the washing of the waves pound. And here is the marvelous reality of this verse in verse 17. We might think, and ultimately we'll find out there is at the foundation, that this rock is God Himself. But that's not the way that John was inspired to write in verse 17. Look with me again. 
And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. Like a river rushing by. It is dying a slow death. But it's sure. Then he goes on. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And who McLaren and ultimately the Lord has set up in opposition to the passing of this world are those righteous men and women of God. Those individuals who live their lives seeking to do the will of God. Do they do it perfectly? No. But the reality is this, the issues of eternity depend on what we do right now. All in this world was and is and is not. It's passing away. But we are heading to a day when we will stand face to face with Christ Jesus our Lord, the timeless one, the permanent one, the one who was and is and is to come. He ultimately is that rock. And the reason why we can be found to be men and women of God, having pierced the veil of time, is because we learn the will of God through the Word of God and we rest upon the rock of God in Christ Jesus. And His work and His work alone. McLaren writes this, and I think it's wonderful, and it, picks, it, it puts the tension of obedience and God's saving work, I think, in a beautiful picture. He says, obedience to God's will is the permanent element in our lives. Whoever humbly and trustfully seeks to mold his will after the divine will and to bring God's will into practice in his doings, that man has pierced through the shadows and grasped the substance and partakers of the immortality which he adores and serves. Himself shall live forever in the true life which is blessedness. His deeds shall live forever when all that lifted itself in opposition to the divine will will be crushed and annihilated. They shall live in His own peaceful consciousness. They shall live in the blessed rewards which they shall bring to the doers. His habits will have no need of change. Obedience to the will of God brings permanence to the passing of our years. And yet here in what John is telling us in verses 6 through 10 is that it is not our obedience that is the foundation of our eternal life. It is rather who we are. It is that we are called children of God that we then reach through the veil of time and pierce the will of God, knowing it through the Word of God and living it out daily that He might be exalted forever. Beloved, mark this down. What we do in this life matters. And so McLaren ends, and I will with his quote, the river flows on. This world is passing away. But it sweeps round the base of the rock of ages. And in Him, by faith in His blood, we can find refuge and our eternal home. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence so thankful that You've called us according to Your own wisdom, not according to who we are in and of ourselves. You have lavished Your love upon us because You are merciful and just and loving and pure. Father, we are sinful people. And what we one day will be has not yet appeared. John tells us that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. 
Father, we know that we sin, but we know that we have a righteous advocate at your right hand at this very moment. And we praise you for that reality. We thank you for taking us out of darkness and bringing us into the marvelous light of your gospel. God, would you strengthen in us a desire to live our lives not according to our own religious inclinations or our own will, but according to your word. Might 